Good evening. Um, in the past few lectures, we discussed a resurgence of classical knowledge and the waning power of the church during the Renaissance, the advent of the Spanish Inquisi Inquisition and the expulsion of the Jews from various countries, the growth of Protestant uh, sects as a new offshoot of Christianity during the Reformation, the Golden Age of Polish Jewry, and the Ukrainian massacres of Bogdan Chalmaniki. Let us backtrack for a moment. As mentioned previously, in the 16th century, about half of the Jewish po population was located in the Middle East, with a high concentration in Turkey and the lands of the Ottoman Empire, and about half in Europe, with the Balkan Eastern Europe, Poland, Ukraine, and Lithuania, which is the last lecture. Let us go to the Ottoman Empire. During the years of the Renaissance, from 1516 onwards, the Muslim power belonged to the Ottoman Empire, based in Istanbul, as, as we discussed previously, was conquered in 1453, which used to be Constantinople and became Istanbul. It is important to note that although the Turks were Muslims, they were not Arabs, and the Turks were traditionally good to the Jews, much better than the Arabs were. We already noted that during the Spanish Inquisition, the head, the Sultan, Bayezid II, declared that they tell me that Ferdinand of Spain is a wise man, but he is a fool, for he takes his treasures and sends it all to me. As the Ottoman Turk Empire came to spread, they came to Israel, they included more and more Jews, concomitantly, with, under the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent, they started to rebuild the land of Israel to an extent. We know that if you visit the old city today, this week, or any week, you look at the walls of the old city, the walls of the old city were built by Suleiman the Magnificent. Believe it or not, the interesting thing is, Suleiman, who built the, rebuilt the walls, what is Suleiman a Muslim name for? Solomon. So Suleiman, Solomon, rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They did make a mistake in the building of the old walls. That's why we call Silwan, Ir David, um, is not included in the old walls of Jerusalem. That was a mistake he had. The builder of that wall, the walls, killed, assassinated, because he made that mistake. So what, it doesn't really mirror the ancient old walls of Jerusalem, but there were walls in Jerusalem as well. In Suleiman, during Suleiman's reign, one of the most interesting figures... Jewesses of Jewish history um, really had a, a, a profound impact. Her name was Donna Gracia Mendes Nasi. She was from one of the wealthiest w w Jewish women in Renaissance Europe. She was married into the eminent international banking and finance company called the House of Mendes. She was the aunt and business partner of Yosef Nasi, Don Yosef Nasi, who is the Duke of Na Naxos. And she was responsible for saving thousands of Jews, thousands of conversal Jews. She had banks and trading posts throughout Europe, Portugal, Amsterdam, Italy. She deserves a lecture herself because she basically had an escape route, just as a small example, it's beyond the scope. Since there were, let's say you had to leave Portugal or Spain and you were a converso, you were a Murano Jew, and you wanted to get out. Well, you had all your possessions there. So you know what they would do? The House of Mendes would say, okay, 
sell one of our representatives the house and when you get to Amsterdam we'll give you the money when you get to Italy we'll give you the money and basically without this is under the, the nose of the Catholic Empire she was dealing with all of the Catholic monarchs so much so that what ultimately forced her to leave Europe to the Ottoman Empire was that the the the, um, the head of the Habsburg Empire wanted one of her daughter her only daughter for marriage <laughs> so she she was so well acquainted with everybody she, and she did this all without the knowledge well she comes to the Ottoman Empire she becomes one of the most powerful ladies figures in this world empire and the Sultan Suleiman actually gave her the right of Tiberius Tiberia and all of his environs to build up in 1558 she actually got autonomy for having a Jewish city this was a, 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 an unbelievable thing here you had in the middle of the 16th century a Jewish run it was a long term lease of course it came with expectation that in price of this lease of Tiberius they get more tax money for um, for Tiberius she also aided um, in settling the town of Tsvas, of Svats. Svas was the commercial crossroads connecting Egypt, Jerusalem, Damascus, and Beirut. And in less than 100 years, the population of Tsvas grew from a mere 300 families in less than 100 years to 10,000 families. Look at source number one. If you didn't get the source sheets, they're on the side over there. Look at source number one. This is by, uh, in the book of Lawrence Fine's Physician of the Soul, Healer of the Cosmos of Yitzhak Lur and his Kabbalistic Fellowship, a quote from a 16th century Italian Jew, Moshe Basal. This is describing Svat, or Svad, in, 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 in the 16th century. The city of Svas is filled with an abundance of good things and excellent foodstuffs, grain, wine, and oil in great abundance and cheap for the person who purchases everything in its season. If it were not for the large amounts of oil and grain that they export from there to Damascus and to other places, it, i.e. this produce, would have no value. All manner of succulent fruits are available there, and whatever is not available locally is imported from Damascus. Trade is widespread in this reason with shops for the woolen garments haberdashery and spices he who so desires can deal in grain wine and oil each in its proper season generally speaking there is much more trade in this land than in Italy now mark this he's talking 16th century that's when Italy was in the, the, the peak of the renaissance that's when Milan and Florence were the largest cities in Europe for the Muslims purchased more willingly from the Jews than from others and during this time Svas gave birth to some amazing contributions to Jewish scholarships. First, we must mention, which is for whatever reason, he's not that well known, <coughs> Rabbi Yaakov Beirav. Rabbi Yaakov Beirav lived from 1475 to 1540, 1546. He is extremely significant for besides being the leader of his generation, he tried to do something which had not been done for over 1,000 years. That is, he tried to reinstate smicha. 
smicha rabbinic ordination, according to strict speaking, strictly speaking, was passed down from Moshe one generation down to the other. Smicha was lost approximately the fifth century, around the time of Hillel the Great, due to um, persecutions, serious persecutions of the Romans and the Christians. The process of smicha was lost. So we call smicha today is, I wouldn't say it's a joke, but it's more symbolic than authentic because we don't have a, we don't have a direct transmission all the way the to, from the time of Moses till today. I once saw some of the scholars said that what was Rabbi Yaakov Beirav's main impetus to reinstate smicha. And that is, he wanted to be able to get, give the Jewish people the din of Sanhedrin to give lashes. Why lashes? Because there were so many conversos, so many Jews, Jews who had converted, who had taken on the Catholic rites, which is apostasy, and he wanted to make sure that they can, when they came back, they can have a tshuva. So he, based on a Maimonides, based on the passions of the Rambam, he felt that if all of the great sages of Israel would agree on one person, this is a, a novel idea of the Ramam, that actually that one person can then reinstate smicha. And he tried to do this, and he, and he gave smicha to a few individuals. However, ultimately, it became a tremendous matter of controversy. One of the heads of the Jerusalem community fought against it, and it was not successful. Smicha was not reinstituted. One of the four individuals who got the smicha from Rabbi Beirav was Rabbi Yosef Karo. We mentioned last time that Rabbi Karo lived from 1488 to 1575. He was amongst the Jews who were expelled from Spain. He ended up going to Izmar, um, to Smyrna, to, to Turkey, and finally ended up in Sfas. As discussed during the last lecture, he wrote one of the most important books in Judaism, the Shulchan Aruch, the prepared to- t- table, which is the code of Jewish law which is filed to our very own day. Rabbi Cairo, it was known, as mentioned last time, for his halachic works, but he was also a very great Kabbalist. He was a very great Kabbalist. He has a book of discussions with him and a heavenly angel called, uh, called Magin Meisharim, and it's no surprise that he lived in Sfas's period. What is Kabbalah? Before going into everything else, just a little background of what is Kabbalah. Kabbalah, the word, means to receive. Kabbalah, to be received. Meaning, it was the secret, the mystical level of the Torah that was revealed to our ancestors and passed down and received generation from generation. Okay, Judaism includes many, many aspects. There are the legal, halakhic aspects, the philosophical, the hashkafic aspects. The ethical aspects, which is Musr, history, which we're doing tonight, and all these appeal to different people at different stages of life, and certain people have more affinities to one area or another. Kabbalah, the mystical, is also one of these areas. Kabbalah includes the spiritual spheres of creation, the ways that God works in the universe, because although we cannot, let me just stress that, we cannot understand that much about the essence of God Himself, we can understand the aspects and the rules which were how God runs the world. Right? While we can't understand the essence of God, we can see how God 
runs the world on a metaphysical uh, basis. Some of the main themes and parts of Kabbalah include Maisa Bereshis, a, the, a, the, a, the attempt to understand how God created the world through Ex Nihilo, um, Maisa Merkava, which is the, the acts of the chariot, which is divine providence, how God runs the world, and Tami HaMitzvahs. A lot of Kabbalah comes to give elucidations, deeper, uh, deeper understandings of how mitzvahs um, and a mystical approach and a deeper level to the commandments, how they affect our lives and how mitzvahs affect the world. Now, Kabbalah was not a new thing. It, didn't, it did not start in the 16th century in Svat. Avram Avinu himself wrote a book of Kabbalah called Sefer Yitzira, the book of creation, I think, that Rabbi Kaplan, I've heard, has a translation, which is very difficult to read, from what I, what I hear from Chaim Roberts, on Sefer Yitzir. That was not written by a later sage, that was written by Avram Avinu himself. Many of the secrets of Kabbalah were revealed to Moshe at, the, at Sinai. Okay? Just like the oral law, which we discussed several lectures back, complemented the written law, and you cannot truly grasp the written Torah without the oral Torah, so too Kabbalah, in, in a sense, is studied as part of the Torah. Okay? And if you believe it or not, there are actually, you can, there, it's alluded to throughout the Mishnah and the Talmud. Kabbalah is to Torah what philosophy is to science. Remember, on, 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 Saturday, I, I, on Shabbos I mentioned the lady became religious because she looked at the rockets and she looked at curious diseases but she couldn't figure out why. Kabbalah is the whys. Right? Science is the what's. Kabbalah is the whys of Judaism. Halacha tells you what to do here, what to do here, what to do here. Kabbalah is saying why it's it this way, why is it that way. What Kabbalah is not. Okay? Traditionally, Kabbalah was a closely guarded secret. Today, however, you can just, if you ever Google Kabbalah, which I did in preparation for this class, Kabbalah is everywhere. Most people have heard something or other about Kabbalah, but what most people are exposed to is a smorgasbord of pop psychology and self-help that pretends to have some connection to Jewish mysticism, but rarely, if ever, does. And the truth be told, it's easy to see how people are fooled. Right? Some disciplines you expect to know something about. But when it comes to Kabbalah, which is mysticism, people expect to be mystified. Right? It has to be incomprehensible. Mumbo-jumbo. Right? Kabbalah is supposed to be the mysterious and enigmatic. The more bizarre it sounds, almost more people believe it. And as a result, you can go onto websites, Kabbalah centers, and this Kabbalah, and you can buy Kabbalistic water for the price of twenty nine ninety nine an ounce, whatever it is, and red strings. I I just want to say unequivocally, this is gibberish and has nothing to do with what we call Kabbalah. Okay? And the problem is to truly understand Kabbalah, a person has to have a significant knowledge of the entire corpus of Jewish learning. You have to, to truly understand Kabbalah, you have to know the Bible, Tanakh, Mishnah, Talmud, Medrash. It goes without saying, being an expert in Jewish language, which a lot of the Kabbalah is based on, both in Aramaic, which is the, the language of the Zohar, 
and in Hebrew, okay, most modern attempts to spread Kabbalah amongst the masses of poorly educated Jews and rich Hollywood figures um, are often ill-conceived, ineffectual, and misleading. Okay, it doesn't edify a person; doesn't make a person necessarily better. Okay, trying to first uh, trying to first study Kabbalah without mastering the Torah itself would be equivalent to studying advanced astrophysics without knowing the basic fundamentals of mathematics and physics. Chaim, is that possible? Not at all. What if you do try to study astrophysics without those basics? You're not going to get very far. You're not going to... What your understanding will be very flawed. The Torah has two general meanings. One is called... I mean, it's several, but the, the most fundamental is pshat. Pshat is called the plain meaning of the text. <coughs> Without resorting to concepts that need to be learned from other sources. This term is a little bit deceiving. People have simple meaning of the text. In yeshivas, you bang it out. You, you look for the simple meaning of the text, for the language, with the, how that fits in in context, is not so uh, easy. Another level is called soid. Soid means secret, secrets. At this level, everything within the Torah can be seen just as like the Torah, the words of the Torah are viewed as the tip of the iceberg. If you're, if you're, or you're flying over the water and you see an iceberg, you see the tip, do you see the whole, do you see the whole iceberg? Not at all. All you're seeing is a tip. So it's telling us when we read Tanakh, when you look at the Gemara, you're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. Beyond those words, there's a whole iceberg, there's a whole deeper understanding. Okay? Generally speaking, the focus of attention um, of this tip of the iceberg is how God views the world, how God deals with the world. Again, the philosophy of the Torah. Okay, this so this Kabbalah is because Kabbalah meant received. It was always, always the greatest scholars giving from one scholar to another. It was transmission by a knowledgeable scholar, not on Wikipedia, not in Kabbalah 101 sold by Random House, or by a Kabbalah Center that charges $29.99 a bottle for water and teaches Kabbalah to some of the most vulgar individuals on the planet. And because Kabbalah is an investigation of very subtle uh, topics right? it's, and it's, it has a sublime nature and we'll discuss tonight Shab Tzvi and Nathan Gaza, who went off the beaten track the Kabbalists the later Kabbalists said that these people went off because they were not ready for Kabbalah their mistake was these individuals Shab Tzvi may have been clinically ill but they themselves were not at the level of Kabbalah they were not prepared for it and they got misled by it now, in our generation, amongst well-meaning Jews, there are some people who tend to Kabbalah because they, they think that the non-esoteric aspects of Torah are uninspiring, devoid of any deeper meaning in their lives. Um, my experience, and I can tell you, this is not, I am not alone, this is the general, including the Kabbalists themselves, um, their, their opinion as well is that that is born of ignorance I've never met a person who was fluent in Talmud 
or a new Tanakh well and said, oh, I need to do Kabbalah now because I'm uninspired. Most people who are inspired by Kabbalah, which is, again, there are, I'll get to that in a second, there are people who are and feel the rest of the Torah just does not speak to them, don't know that much about the rest of the Torah. Those are people who have very little knowledge, for the most part, of Halakha or Talmud or, or never really were in a yeshiva to be able to study at a deep level. And they have user-friendly books, and that's why they're inspired by Kabbalah. But Kabbalah really, really, and if you look at the sages, is once you've exhausted the primary text, once you've exhausted the pshat, then Kabbalah is another interpretation. So just in sum, Kabbalah is a very authentic, important part of Torah, but Kabbalah divorced from the rest of the corpus of Mishnah and Torah and Tanakh and everything is uh, not only dangerous, but it's not Kabbalah. <laughs> it's misapplied. It's flawed. It's learning astrophysics without a background of math. If you, you don't n- understand what you're reading on a deeper level, it may make sense, but you don't, you don't really understand what you're saying. I remember somebody uh, uh, once said that you know sometimes people go, they can read a book chemistry for dummies or idiots, I'm not sure what what it is. You know, and they can speak to a lot of people, and they sound intelligent, but the minute this person who read that book speaks to a chemist, the chemist knows that this person doesn't intrinsically understand what he's reading. The person, the chemist knows, Jacob's smiling, because you can tell a person who really doesn't understand science, a chemist knows the difference. Another person, wow, this person knows Kabbalistic topics. Sounds really intelligent. But they understand that you can't understand the, the depth of it. If you look at the greatest Kabbalists, the Maharal, the Vilna Goyen, the Baal Hatanya, the Arizal, they were not just great in Kabbalah, the Ramchal, they were great in all aspects of Torah. They were great in Talmud, they were great in Halacha, they were great in the Chumash, and Kabbalah was part of their greatness. And that's why their Kabbalah is studied to this day. There's no Kabbalists. They only knew Kabbalah, and that's who we're studying. You, you can't name such a person. The accepted Kabbalim, people who are in the mainstream, were great in all areas of Torah, and Kabbalah was one of the mediums of where they expressed themselves. And importantly, if by any chance somebody is interested, and they're not at this level, because many of us, and I include myself, are not at the level to say, oh, I, I've learned all of Torah, and we have an interest in Kabbalah. Well, two very important things. First and foremost, a person should only learn Kabbalah by an expert. No one would go to a a, a doctor who's a charlatan or a fraud or who went to, uh, you know, some school in Ecuador, in the mountains of Ecuador, and that's his medical school. He'll start giving us medical advice. A person who wants to study a Kabbalistic topic has to go to an authority. And an authority of somebody who's not only fluent in Kabbalah, but a Talmud Chacham Muflag. I'll be honest. I, had, I learned the Kabbalistic say for a couple of years. It was one of a genius of geniuses. A tremendous Torah scholar. One of the next G'day Lehador. But he knew Shas like this. <laughs> he knew Shas. So, it, when I'm learning with him, and I'm reading, I'm very fluent in the text. I could actually double check everything he said. This is going back six, seven years ago, but I mean, that's, that's, he, and when he was quoting something, he was had shots in his head. And number two, if you don't have that leader, there are books that are made for our generation, like the Ramchal's works. You read the Ramchal's works. He wrote that for the masses. 
like the Maral's works, which are a little bit harder, but also um, some of uh, the Shla, the Shnei Chasabris, those are works which took Kabbalistic principles and were written for mass dissemination. Okay, Rabbi Eliyahu Dessler, the Strive for Truth in English, Mikhtam Eliyahu in Hebrew, are written for people who want to hear Kabbalistic topics. I'm not giving you a full list, but it has to be a book that's accepted. Rabbi Ari Kaplan took a lot of these works and made them uh, uh, available for the masses where a person won't get the wrong messages. Now, beyond that, is there any relevance to us? Well, at some level, being aware and seeing, hearing Kabbalistic concepts, seeing upshots and explanation in it, uh, it gives us an awareness that indeed every word of the Torah, every word of the Torah, without exception, is a tip of an iceberg. That the Torah is boundless, boundless in, 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 in depth. I mean, somebody who studies Talmud in depth also, also realizes that. The Torah is boundless in depth. It's an awareness and an inspiration that our mitzvahs have numerous effects in numerous meetings. Okay? And just for, by a couple of examples, just to show how Kabbalah, even though the main study of Kabbalah was for the great sages, <coughs> um, how many of the main themes affect us. One of the great things, I'll just take two, I took two examples. One of the great contributions of Kabbalah to the understanding the importance of mitzvah observance in the service of Hashem is broadening the scope of the effect of human activity. Okay? As one of the central teachings of Kabbalah is the cosmic effect of every mitzvah we do, every word we say, every thought we think. In the words of Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the Ramachal, the great 18th century, uh, century Kabbalist, Hashem has ordained that man's actions affect the spiritual sources of everything in this world. So, in fact, you came back from Sonora, you've changed the world. Not only man's deeds have, they have, have this effect, but his words and his thoughts. Rabbi Chaim Velazhin, the founder of the Yeshiva movement, writes that a Jew must never say to himself, who am I and what difference do my actions make anyway? Rather, one must understand and know that and internalize that no detail of his every deed, word, and thought is lost. His deeds are exceedingly powerful and effective. Each one ascends to a higher worlds and has some impact there. Viewed from the lens of Kabbalah, each one of us, without exception, okay, each one of us, without exception, we are programmed into the world spiritual zone. When we study Torah in the morning, it affects the entire spiritual world. The fact that everyone is here tonight studying Torah, or studying Torah in a different lecture, is it makes a huge impact in the spiritual world, whereas if a person be even wasting time, certainly doing something improper, it would negatively affect the spiritual world. Every thought, every word we do, Kabbalah stresses, has cosmic effects. That's something that's now a main uh, stream approach to Judaism, it's not, if I'm in my private room and I eat a cheeseburger, it's not, it's personal autonomy, the great American liberty and ideal. My world, my room, my cheeseburger doesn't affect you and me. No, it does. Because if a Jew eats a cheeseburger in a room, it affects the entire spiritual world and the entire spiritual world 
could be pulled out. If a Jew comes to davening and davens, it affects the entire spiritual world, and the entire spiritual world is uplifted. When a Jew lights candles, Friday night when a lady lights candles, it makes a difference if she cries, or feels it, or says a bracha with kavana, because it doesn't just affect her bracha, it affects the entire spiritual world. Another very important teaching of Kabbalah concerns the interconnectedness between all Jews. Okay? Although unity is a basic Jewish theme, and we see it in the Torah, we see it in the, in, the, in the Talmud, Kabbalah really focuses that literally all Jews are connected by our souls. In fact, we discussed this with the Ramak in Tomer Devar just a few weeks ago, the first class on Tomer Devar on Shabbos, we said exactly that. So what did we say? It's said in Tomer Devar by the Ramosha Kordavaro, you should love your fellow Jew as if he were you, because he is you. Because he is you. Kabbalah teaches that each Jew is soul is interconnected with one another, and that everything we do, when we're nice to a Jew, we're being nice to ourselves. And since I spoke about that at length, I'll leave it at that. The Arizal, on this note, said that before every prayer, and this is actually the Mishnah Brurah, the Chavetz Chaim codifies this, that ideally, before every time a Jew prays, they should think to themselves the merit of loving every other Jew. That when we pray, we're praying for all the Jew- all Jewish people. And in San Jose, we have a lot of people to pray for. <laughs> okay? We think about, but not just ourselves. We think about everyone else who we're praying because we're not just praying for ourselves. It's not that we think just as we're praying, I'm praying for so-and-so. When we pray, we're all interconnected. Really, we're praying for everyone whether we think about it or not. But certainly when we think about it, it has a profound effect. The result, so much so held that our prayers emanate for the entire Jewish people that he had inscribed on his matzeva, or they inscribed on his matzeva, on his tombstone, exactly this idea. Now let's go back to Tzvas. The key work of Kabbalah is called the Zohar, the Book of Splendor. Okay? The contents, now again, most of the Kabbalistic principles were given over to Moshe at Sinai, but the contents of this book were first revealed to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai approximately in the year 100 CE. If you remember, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai he was one of the five main disciples of Rabbi Akiva. Okay. But it was kept from student to student as an oral tradition. In <coughs> the late 13th century, Rabbi Moshe de Leon, who was a Spanish rabbi, published it as a written work. Okay. Rabbi Shinar Bar Yochai was seen as the father of Kabbalah as we know it. But again, he, he just... Kind of like the Talmud. You know, we the Talmud will quote Rabbi Meir, and we'll quote Rabbi Yossi, and we'll quote Rabbi Akiva, but the principles are from Moshe. It's just the language that's given over, the, the way it's distilled for the masses, or for the people reading the Talmud, that was codified by Rabbi Huda Nasi. The Talmud they were studying for generations. So Rishim Yochai was the same thing as far as the Zayar. And he, he elucidated these Kabbalistic concepts in a systematic uh, way. Okay? Moreover, as we all know, Lag Ba'omer, Rabbi Shimber Yochai, was in a cave for many years, and he had divine inspiration, um, which helped him understand concepts and formulate, for, formulate them in new ways. 
Um, and that's why the Zohar remains the primary source of Kabbalistic knowledge to this day. Okay? However, even after the exposition of the Kabbalah in the form of the Zohar, it remained an enigmatic and hidden discipline. The Zohar, if anyone actually reads the actual Zohar, is extremely terse and it is essentially written like a type of code. I think they were, they were, um, we still, they still have it. In the, they're exhibiting the Magna Carta. One of the copies of the original Magna Carta, Carta are in San Francisco. If you go look at the Magna Carta and you try to read it, besides that it's written in Latin, so we're, I don't know if anyone speaks Latin here, but even if you did speak Latin, I would bet that 99 out of 100 Latin speakers and readers can't read it because it's in code language. It's in shorthand. Okay, you actually need the explanation to figure out what's going on. The Zohar, to a large extent, is the same way. And for that reason, the greatest Torah personalities over the ages expanded upon and tried to elucidate uh, and explicate the Zohar. But it was in Tzfas, in the 16th century, that the Zohar and Kabbalah made it big time. Now, not the big time that I just debunked. (laughs) Not the big time of you know, Kabbalah centers in Hollywood and selling Kabbalah water over the internet and disseminating books which, you know, are clearly written by people who read Kabbalah 101 for dummies and don't really know that much more than a few general principles of Kabbalah. Now, again, because I want this to see what's out there. So I went on Wikipedia. and I'm not, I don't look at myself as a Kabbalist, maybe eventually. I'm reading, there are dumbed-down versions of what things are saying. Okay, you can see when they're talking about Simpson, the people don't grasp what the top, they understand Talmudic concepts to, or biblical concepts to be able to explain Kabbalistic concepts. So, the Ramak, who we're studying now on Shabbos Day, Ramoshu Kordavoro, in his work, Pardes Rimonim, the Pomegranate uh, Garden, Orchard, excuse me, demonstrated how Kabbalah works. And he organized it in a new way. What was his main way of organizing it? He had something called the Ten Spheres, the Ten Modes or Channels, how God under uh, um, uh, channels his divine energy in this world. How God interacts with, his wor- with this world. Understanding these Ten Forces of Kabbalah really gives a person, ten, ten Forces of Dealing with the World of these Spheres, really gives a person an understanding of Kabbalah. If you look at Spheres that Omer which you're reading now, You'll see on the side of the sitter, Netzach and Hod and Chachma, right? Those are many of these spheres. But this provides a dilemma. And what's the dilemma of the ten spheres, these ten channels? We know that Judaism always stresses the unity of God. What do we say? What's the one biblical thing we say in the morning and night? Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. God is one. Jews die for generations, right? Because of concepts like Trinity, Concepts of paganism, several gods, one of the Maimonides um, aspects of faith, 13 dogmas of faith, which we discussed at length during the lecture on Maimonides, is that you cannot believe in more than one God and no subpowers. You can't pray to angels if they're of that part of God. God uses one God and that's it. Right? And how are we now diluting the oneness of God with this concept of ten spheres? The Kabbalists are going to spread this idea of ten spheres and the Ramak really explained it in length. How, uh, how are we downloading it? So the Rivosh, Rabbi Tzach Barashashis, he was asked this question. And the question that was in his chuvas and his response up, 
is, is don't, don't you see that the spheres are a contradiction to the oneness of God? Aren't they a contradiction to see ten modes, ten channels of how God interacts in this world with the oneness of God? And I'm going to paraphrase his reply. He said, Hashem's unity, vis-a-vis the ten spheres, may be likened to the array of sun passing through a prism. Okay, on one side we have a single ray of light, while on the other side we, per- we perceive a radiation of several, or seven colors. The person sitting on the, on, on the side of the, of the prism will see many lamps radiating many hues. But in actuality, it's one light. In actuality, it's really one light that's coming through. Says the Rivosh, is this is a true understanding of Hashem. Because when we look at the world, we see many, many contradictory uh, uh, events. Right? The, the world sometimes, and all theologies and philosophies and theologians try to grapple with it. You see, there's one God who breathes life into a baby's mouth and takes life away from a baby as well. There's a God who can allow a holocaust on one hand, let the survival and if, and, and, uh, of the Jewish people. Another, I just today I was seeing a film of the Jewish people in 1967 coming back to Jerusalem. I was, you know, reconquering Yushalayim. And you think about the miracle of God. 1967, just 25 years after Auschwitz was up and running, you see Jewish soldiers crying at the Kotel that reconquering it I was just reading you know the history of the, uh, the 67 war and you think about it there was 250,000 troops on Israel's borders on June 5th 1967 250,000 sh- troops and the, the streets uh, uh, were, were shut down and Nasser kicked out the UN uh, from, from Sinai and then six days later the Jews had now conquered Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and Sinai. They had knocked out the air forces. Same God who did the Holocaust. <laughs> As you see the chauffeur blowing in Yerushalayim, celebrating the reconquering of Jerusalem. Go back 25 years. Go back 25 years and go to the, see the, the pillars of Auschwitz. This is the same God. Right? It's the, the same God who gives some people beautiful bodies, and yet some children are born deformed. Right? It's the same God. So when, uh, when a person looks in, and they're in our side of the prison, it looks like, how could it be such kindness, and sometimes what appears to us a cruelty, or something that's masked, this one hasn't makes a living, this one doesn't make a living, this one's healthy, this one's not, this one has a good marriage, this one married the wrong person, the ten spheres are the various ways which we perceive God through His action within the world, but we firmly know that there's only one God. It's just the prism, the way it comes out, and how it deals with the world. Now, I'm just going to just tell the ten spheres so people should be aware, but don't read too much into it, because the simple translation doesn't really indicate that much. So the ten spheres are Kesser, which is crown, Chachamah, which is wisdom, Bina, which is understanding, Chesed, which is kindness, Gavur, which is strength, Tiferes, which is beauty, Netzach, which is victory, Hod, which is awe, Yisur, which is foundation, and Malchus, which is monarchy, and some, um, some take out Ketzer and put in Das, Chabad, obviously will do that, Chachma, Bina, and Das, um, which is included between Bina and Chesed. So the Ramak popularized and systematically taught 
Kabbalah and Sfas became a center of Kabbalah. Sfas, now we're a center of Kabbalah, Rav Chaim Vital, who is probably most responsible for actual spreading of Kabbalah at some level, said even the center of Kabbalah and Sfas was limited. Right? We talked about the 10,000 people living in Sfas. It was a select few. It wasn't like if you went to the Shul on Shabbos, <laughs> there was the Kabbalah shares in the corner, and Kabbalah pamphlets, and, you know, you know, Kabbalah Center on the corner of Svat, as you walked there, you had the Arizal coming in, the guy came back from work, he put up his coat, and he heard the Arizal coming and, uh, and give a lecture on Kabbalah, and the next room over, Yosef Cairo was explaining another Kabbalah, that was not what Svat was. It was a city of Torah, and they were amongst those Torah giants, several of them, who became great in Kabbalah. The greatest of them all was Rabbi Yitzhak the Ari HaKadosh. Rabbi Yitzhak Luria, who lived from 1334 to 1572, popular called the Ari, Rabbi Yitzhak, Rabbi Yitzhak, or Ari the Lion, he was the Lion of the Kabbalists. As Rabbi Shimbar Yochai before him, he categorized the Kabbalist accomplices, but beyond that, he had himself revelations and revealed new ones as well. He also has the most authoritative interpretation of the Zohar. The Arizal was born of an Ashkenazic father and a Sephardic mother. And he was born in Germany. However, his father passed away at a very, when he was very young. And his mother moved back to her home country of Egypt where they were supported by her brother, Mordechai Francis. Mordechai Francis enrolled his young nephew, Yabitza Kluria, in the yeshiva of Rabbi David Zimri, the Ridvaz, who was the head of Egyptian Jewry, the, uh, the, 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 actually the Radvaz. The Radvaz, uh, his commentary is a famous commentary on the Rambam on Maimonides. This Arizal became a tremendous, brilliant scholar. And guess what? The Arizal, in his youth, only studied Gemara. He was a great Gemara student. He knew Shas before he ever became the Kabbalist that we know him. He studied Gemara for years. In fact, his Rebbe, the Radvaz, was a, one of the greatest Talmudists of the generation. When his uncle saw his nephew as such a great Talmudist, well, and he was very wealthy, he decided to give him his own daughter. And so he married his first cousin. Post-marriage, she started to study Kabbalah. They started to study Kabbalah on a very serious level. How serious? Well, at some point, for seven years, seven straight years, he only came home for Shabbos. Okay? He lived by the Nile River, in seclusion, and all he did was study Kabbalistic works, primarily the Zohar, fast, pray, observe, Ponder, pray. That's all I did for And he come home for Shabbos to, to Cairo. A few years later, he actually became a merchant and did Kabbalah, uh, and, uh, and, and so he rabbinic on the side. Eventually, eventually, when he was 36 years old, he decided he wanted to study by the Ramak, by Ramosh Kardavaro. And he traveled to Sfat to study by the leading Kabbalist of the generation. The day that he came to Sfat was the day that the Ramak, this is before Twitter, before email, before 
um, radio. It was the day that Amak was being buried. He actually came as a funeral was about to, was going on, and he gave a hesped. That's Alex for the hesped, if you want. Uh, he gave a hesped by the Ramak's funeral. The, the Arizal, and everyone, Loriana Kabbalah, Arizal, he lived in Tzfat for two years. At the age of 36 years old, he was an unknown figure. Had he passed away, God forbid, at the age of 35, we would have never heard of his name. None of us. <laughs> hey, if you know one here would have heard of Arizal, no one 20 years later would have known who he was. But he came to Sfas, and the last two years of his life, from the age of 36 to 38, he became the lead Kabbalist in Sfas. And he perfected the Ramak's Sphiris. He actually explained the perceived Sphiris as Partsufim. He almost gave them a human aspect of how God did, does the world. I'm not going to go into what that means because I don't think myself I grasp 100% what he means. But how they are pursued and parsana, which they themselves have a um, uh, a an impact in certain ways. He also popularized reincarnation in his Shara Gugulim, in his Gate of Reincarnation, and he explains a lot of the stories of Tanakh and the Talmud based on reincarnation. That, I've went through a little bit of Shagagulam. It is mind-boggling to see how he explains certain passages based on this time. And in the Arizal's time, Sfas, this group of Kabbalists, this group, it was not the city, it was a group, took Kabbalah to the next level. It's at this point, it's, you know, the folklore, they used to go out to the mountains, dressed in white, and sing Kabbalah Shabbos, that Kabbalah Shabbos becomes instituted in Sfat, in the generation of the Arizal. Rabbi Shlomo Alkabetz was a Talmud, was a student of the Arizal. He, he authored Mechadodi. Okay? And, and that Kabbalah Shabbos slowly crept through Europe. It didn't spread to er- everywhere until even late to the 19th century. If you would be davening in the 18th century in most shoals, you wouldn't be saying Kabbalah Shabbos. You'd be saying two passages of Tehillim. But Kabbalah Shabbos became popularized. The Arizal passed away. He had not published a single work. Not published a single work. Now, we would have still heard of his name, but we would have no idea what he actually said. I mean, we would have heard, some ideas would have seeped through, but nothing was published. He had one great, great student above all others. His name was Rabbi Chaim Vital. Vital, it comes from the um, Italian word, Vita, life. Chaim means life. Rabbi Chaim Vital, his name was life. He, he is like one of these p- f- figures. I'll give a couple of stories who there's so many, you know, uh, divine stories about the individual. Rabbi Chaim's father, Rabbi Yosef, was a tefillin macher. He used to make tefillin. And it's said that when Rabbi Chaim was a young boy, he went to visit Eretz Yisrael. And he met a big tzaddik, whose name was Rabbi Chaim Ashkenazi. And this Rabbi Chaim Ashkenazi told Rabbi Yosef, it's Philemacher. You should move to Israel and you'll have a son who will light up the world. And this Sadiq died shortly after. He moved to Israel. Two years later, he had a son and he named the son Chaim after this Rabbi Chaim Ashkenazi. And Rabbi Chaim Vital was in study Torah. His first Rabbi was Rabbi Moshe Alshech. 
The Al Shekhakadosh is one of the has one of the primary commentaries on the Torah. He was a darshan. A darshan was a was a rov. He would go, get up every Shabbos and make me look like a short give short for our Torahs. He would speak two or three hours. Can you imagine? And no stories. Right? He was a darshan. He was able to go through Tanakh and just start explaining and darshan upon it. Reb Chaim then had actually a diary of his life, Reb Chaim Vital. And he says that when he was 12 years old, a palm reader, a palm, now we think of palm readers, we think of these charlatans and quacks, like you walk by right next to the tattoo store, <laughs> you see a palm, you know, tattoo and palm readers go next to each other. That's usually how we view palm readers. But there is a concept called Chachma, uh, based on this Chachma Sufu called reading palm. So uh, uh, one of the legitimate Kabbalistic palm readers read his palm. Now, I just want to say strongly that we don't base our lives on this type of thing, just for the record. Uh, but this person told Rabchaim Vital that you, in your life, you will either be the w- most wicked person or you'll be the most righteous generation. You'll have a point when you're 24 years old, you'll have a breaking point. Which, by the way, in and of itself is not a surprise. One thing, as I mentioned last night, between Min if you look at the greatest people of Tanakh, they were from the greatest scholars, the people with the most potential, Korach, Yeravam, right? even a person like Moses Mendelssohn, who ultimately starts to reform movement, was a tremendous Talmud scholar. Right? There are great people who could have done great things for the Jewish people, ultimately did very negative things. Reb Chaim was devoted, but when the Arizal came, he became his Talmud. And after the Arizal passed away, he became the disseminator of Kabbalah. Eventually, his son, long story, got his books posthumously from, from his father, Shmuel, and published the Chaim Vital's works, which were all the Arizal's teaching. The first and most important work is called Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim, the Tree of Life, is the primary, if you know a Kabbalist, the first book they're going to turn to is Eitz Chaim. Eitz Chaim discusses at length divine providence, the secrets of the Torah, understanding how the soul, uh, the soul is purpose of life. He wrote Sefer HaGogulam, the Book of Wandering, Sefer HaChazionis, the Book of Visions, Shari Kedusha, which is an ethical work, Gates of Holiness, and many other Kabbalistic works. I don't want to discuss Luriana Kabbalah too much, but just a couple of key principles. Luriana Kabbalah held the first concept, okay, you have Levi Feldman, I'm sure you learned a little bit of Tanya in your life. Once or twice you heard Tanya in Barry Vogel. So you heard of Tzimtzum? So the first thing that Kabbalah is going to start with is a concept called Tzimtzum. Now you heard what the Balatanya says. So there's the Balatanya's understanding of Tzimtzum. The Vilna Goyen has another understanding of Tzimtzum. The the of Vital has a different understanding of Tzimtzum. But according to all of these opinions, Tzimtzum is this. If God is so great... Okay, actually, let me read you the, the results, actual results, words first. Translation. Prior to creation, this is from Eitzchaim, Eitzchaim actually. Prior to creation, there was only the infinite. The infinite in Kabbalistic terminology is called Ein Soif. God is omnipotent, God is limitless. Filling all of existence. If the world pre-Bereshis is Ein Soif, God controls, is, is all over the whole world. When it arose in God's will to create worlds and emanate the emanated, 
he contracted, we call that simsum, himself in the point at the center, in the very center of his light. Now, if you don't take this literally, I mean, like, like, you know, part of simsum is, that part of all these debates is what simsum means. But according to all things, he had to contract, because there cannot be free will, there cannot be a room for a human in the world if God is everywhere. Think about it. If God is everywhere in the entire world, where's, where do we fit in? <laughs> okay? Um, he restricted that light, distancing it to the side surrounding the central point, so that there remained a void, a hollow, empty space away from the central point. After this symptom, this contraction, he drew down from uh, Or Ein Sof a single straight line of light from his light surrounding the void from uh, above to below and it chained down descending to that world in the space of that void he emanated created and formed and made all worlds okay in other words the world cannot have been created a world of free will or a world where we could manipulate if God did not contract itself God takes now the little kids saying Hashem is here Hashem is there Hashem is truly so where, where are we? <laughs> so it's symptom allows us to be here. Um, he emanated his energy in the ten spheres, uh, like the Ramak, but the Arizal says in the Luriana Kabbalah, and this is where this is what's gonna be very important for us. Luriana Kabbalah said as follows that when God originally created the world there were these ten spheres, these ten vessels, they received the divine light, but the seven lower vessels shattered. Call it's called Shviras Ha Caleb, the shattering of the vessels. So again, these are concepts. Don't take it. There's no vessels. But it means shattering of the vessels. These lower seven levels shattered. And all of it fell into the abyss. And these are into particles called clipus. Particles around the world. And that it became the duty of man, in particular the Jews, to be metakin, to do tikkun, to rectify by picking up these klipos. And tikkun was only possible through the commandments of the Torah. And where was it possible? When a Jew had a lot of kavanah, when a Jew was able to take out klipos. Some of these particles were in really bad places. A Jew had to live in Las Vegas <laughs> to take out some klipos in Las Vegas. Now, it just, just skip a step and think about it. These klipos, a person can justify a lot of things. Right, like Madonna, she's getting her clipus. Where are you? Everyone has clipus. We're gonna, I'm gonna get the particles in the depth of Hollywood. In the depth of Hollywood, we'll, my duty is to have Kavana there. Right, I remember, I still remember a, a young, foolish individual. I say young and foolish because he didn't get his clipus. Who said he wanted to go to a certain place because he felt he would be more successful in this very negative environment and he'll be able to reach the greater heights in a very negative environment. That is not the message we should be taking. Okay? That was the errors that people made. But Luyana Kabbalah said there's a deal of Shvira there's a deal of picking up Klippus. And not only that, says Luyana Kabbalah, once all of these Klippus, all of these particles from the, se- the seven shattered Kalim, seven spheres are recouped, Mashiach automatically comes. Which means, according to the Rihanna Kabbalah, you know, if you were a Jew in the 14th century, what did, how did you view the exile? A Jew would view the exile as it was a punishment. We were punished for our sins. We were punished for our sins, and that's why we're in exile. Came the Rihanna Kabbalah, 
and change the, 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 the viewpoint. No, it's not just the punishment. We're involved in bringing Mashiach. Why am I living in San Jose? And why we have to get the converts here? By the way, that's part of Leviana Kabbalah. There, there are certain converts. If we're not living it, they won't come. And why? Because there has to be a certain amount of mitzvahs done in Germany. There has to be a certain amount of mitzvahs done in Tahiti. I don't know if there's a Jewish community in Tahiti. There may be one clipper or two, or maybe one or two particles there. Maybe some guy, some businessman, one day will pass through, say Shema, and that's all you have Tahiti, and Tahiti's done. We've got the clippers up, and wherever we go, so exile became a mission, and redemption became put into our hands. Right? Redemption became our responsibility. Redemption became our responsibility to fix the world. Through our deeds, we can build the world. We can bring Mashiach. And you have to remember, at this time in the 16th century, as these teachings are being disseminated to, to greater, greater masses, because even though Luriana Kabbalah, for the most part, was supposed to remain in the hands of a few, it became more widely disseminated. Because the printing press was out. The printing press was out. And certain works like the Maral and the Shla spread these concepts to even on kosher levels. Right? And everybody knew this Luriana idea. And people, many, many people started studying Kabbalah till they were fluent in this language. And people said, well, we've we got to bring Mashiach and we're going to do it. And in the year 1648, there's actually a passage in the Zohar which many people believed it was going to be the year of the Messiah. It was going to be the year of Mashiach, 1648. But in 1648, the Sheikh didn't come. As we discussed the last lecture, one of the greatest tragedies, genocide came. It was the years of Tachvatat, of Chalmaniki, butchering and murdering tens of thousands of Jewish people and communities. That's what came in 1648. And people were devastated. Totally devastated. And it would lead to the Sabbatean movement. This movement, which we'll discuss in a minute, had no parallel in Jewish history. It did get its strength from traditional Jewish hopes. Of course, Maimonides talks about that one of the 13 dogmas of Jewish faith is not only the belief of, but the yearning for Messiah. The yearning for Mashiach. We want Mashiach now. That's one of the, the principles. But the specific catalyst was a Kabbalistic interpretation of the exile and redemption, which was widely studied and dispersed in the mid-17th century. And it needed a mystic named Shabtai Tzvi to take its full course. Born in 1666, 1626 in Smyrna, which was like um, like the Brooklyn of Izmir. Izmir is the second largest city of in Turkey today. It has historically had a very large Jewish population. Turkish Jewry has dwindled in our generations, but historically it was a very powerful, very learned Jewish community in Izmir, in Smyrna. And Shabtai Tzvi was born in 1626. Now his followers claim that Shabtai Tzvi was born on Tishabov. And that's for a reason. Because there is a medrash that says that the Mashiach, that the Messiah will be born on Tishabov. 
His family were Romanite Jews, Romanites or Greek Jews, which were close to the Sephardic, but they were not exactly Sephardic. And he was, his father was a simple man, a poultry dealer. But by the age of 20, Shabtai Tzvi already was considered a Chacham. That's the Sephardic way of calling it, a rabbi. He was learned. He was a wise man by the members of the community. But more pronounced by the age of 20 than his scholarship was his strange mystical speculations, religious ecstasies, right? And but at the same time, he seemed like a holy man. Yeah, you know, he would say to Hillem and chuckle and surely be, you know, smiling as he davened like this. And everyone thought, this guy must be a tzaddik. Yeah, he does some bizarre things, but he says all kinds of Kabbalistic, you know, phrases actually, and he knew it. Shabbat he wasn't so ignorant of it. And he looks like he's a spiritual individual. So some people were attracted to him. But, he did some weird things. For example, he started to say he's Messiah. Said the God's ineffable name out loud. And the traditionalists in, in Israel didn't go for it, and they expelled him from the city. He went from city to city, ended up in Salonika. Now Salonika, in the mid-17th century, was a majority Jewish city. T- today, Thessalonica, which is Salonika, is the second largest Greek city. But in the Middle Ages, in the late 17th century to almost the 20th century, Salonika was a Jewish-dominated city. So much so that the ports, which the Jews controlled, were closed on Shabbos. The boats were known not to pull into the port of Salonika, because the port, I mean, this is one of the greatest port cities in the Mediterranean, and they knew that the port of Salonika, if you go today, it's one of the great port cities of the Mediterranean today, the ports were closed on Shabbos. So he ends up in Salonika, and again, he, people start, some people start respecting him, he looks like a holy man, he speaks Kabbalistic terms, he, he knows stuff, but he does bizarre things. Like one thing he did, is he had a mock wedding. He had a mock wedding of himself and a Sefer Torah. <laughs> he literally had Hooray at Mukudashis Lee. And he married a Sefer Torah. So he ends up getting ca- ca- knocked out of Salonika as well. And he travels around the Mediterranean, also sometimes going through normal behavior, sometimes going through bizarre acts. You know, Gershon Sholem, who was this, you know, famous secular professor of Hebrew University of Kabbalah. I would not recommend his works. Uh, one of the things he says about Shabbat Tzvi is he, 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 he classifies as a clinical manic depressive. He just had, he had huge swings if you, if, if you read his life. So in 1664, Shabbat ma- married a woman called Sarah. Sarah was an orphan. Her parents were killed when she was a young girl in the Chalmaniki massacres. She was very charismatic and she had a reputation of ill repute. <laughs> of serious ill repute. Um, some think that Shabtai Tzvi thought he was Hosea. If you look at the beginning of the book of Hosea, God tells Hosea marry a prostitute. And that was a, a divine command. And Shabtai Tzvi, he goes through these periods. Finally he decides he's in Israel, he'll go to somebody called Nathan, at the time he's living in Jerusalem, but Nathan of Gaza. Because he'll give him a tikkun, a rectification, a cure for his ailments. Because he had a compulsion to sin, Shabbat Tzvi. He is this great Kabbalist, right? With serious compulsions to sin. Now Nathan of Gaza was a young 
scholar himself, young scholar, and he and her shot each other. Seems like one of these people you heard of. You know, either you laughed at him, or you loved him, or you thought he was crazy, or you thought he was holy. He, but he was known who he was. He had been walking around the Mediterranean. You know, it's kind of like Sarah Palin Lahavdol. You know, you love her, you hate her, think she's crazy, think she's dumb, she thinks she's brilliant. It, 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 everyone has an opinion about, about her everyone has an opinion about Shabtai Tzvi Nathan of Gaza meets Shabtai Tzvi and he, instead of curing him he tells Shabtai I think you are the Messiah now it's it, it, what I, what's clear is that Nathan actually believed this <laughs> okay he believed to some extent that, that Shabtai was the Messiah and he thought he was Elijah and Nathan was Every Messiah needs a good publicist. Right? Nathan was Shabtai sees publicist. And he starts going out, we have the Messiah, and he, and he started the Messianic career. Now, he does this in Jerusalem. Immediately the signs go up in Jerusalem. Lunatics, fanatics, stay away from them, excommunications go up. Um, but Nathan did the religious route. He said, no, we want to have tshuva. And he started having, you know, speeches for tshuva. Nothing wrong with that. Which rabbis don't want that? They're doing wonderful, wonderful deeds. Almost like Hamas, you know. We only have soup kitchens. Right? We're doing wonderful. I mean, who's gonna, you know, you, you come there, the guy does something, uh, all of you know, handy to children, you know, food for the poor, very hard to fight against these people. So Nathan started having these massive tshuva gatherings. And they're, not, they're not talking about Shabbat Tzina necessarily. Talk about doing tshuva. Now, the tshuva was to bring Mashiach. So it kind of disempowered the Jerusalem rabbis to act against him. Nevertheless, they realized that Jerusalem was not so hospitable, never good to have strong traditional rabbis against you. So they decided to go to Gaza. And from now on, Nathan said that Gaza will be, not Jerusalem, will be the place of Messiah. And he started disseminating these messages about Messiah. And people started to, you know, there was, a, there was a, a yearning for it. There was a desire for it. Okay? There was, people wanted Messiah. And it started to catch on. And in 1665, <coughs> Shabtai left Gaza and first went to Aleppo, which is one of the great Syrian cities of Judaism, Aleppo. And he was given the king's welcome. Right, they gave him a kiss, and then he went to Shmona, and everyone is welcoming him, giving a lot of homage. Place where he had been kicked out uh, previously, and as he got there, Nathan had sent down things that he's now this Messiah figure, and they they blew horns and they greeted him, "Long live our King, our Messiah." And Nathan said that the next year, the year 1666, that will be. Um, the year of, of Messiah, and that he would come with Eliyahu, Nathan, and there'd be no bloodshed, and that the Messiah would lead back the ten tribes, he'll ride on a lion with a seven-headed dragon in its mouth, and all, making all his claims, and of course quoting lots of Kabbalistic passages to prove um, his point. And all of a sudden, it became, people became enthusiastic by it. They, they bought into it. They, they, they thought they can bring Messiah. It was, it, it, they had just had tremendous suffering. And you had this great Kabbalistic guy saying, Messiah is coming. And that we have Messiah. And this commotion became tremendous. 
pamphlets were passed out. Now remember, this is before internet, before instant communication, and no one in Germany or in Italy knows what they're reading. They're just hearing stories. And they start passing out stories about Shabbat see very much embellished. Holy man, well-versed in Kabbalah, charismatic, and, he, and all, everyone who met Shabbat see felt he was charismatic. Sweet smile, great politician, seems holy. And when he, and when he was in his period of sameness, he gr- gave a very, very good impression. And they spread this throughout, and people are reading this, and they're believing it. Not only that, in Christian circles, especially amongst the Christian millenarians, um, right, they were instrumental in publishing these letters and pamphlets in Italian, German, Dutch, and English. And there were all of a sudden fantastic reports started coming out. You know, you know literally crazy reports. In Scotland, people saw a boat with, that, with sailors who spoke Hebrew, and it said 12 tribes on the boats. Okay? And literally all of Avignon, France, start to sell their houses because they're preparing to move in mass. Okay, there's actually, if anyone knows anything about theology, Heinrich Oldenburg um, was, was a famous German theologian and he was a great diplomat of the 17th century. He has a letter. This is, this is in Spinoza's letters. Baruch Spinoza. Um, I don't know if we'll get to him, but uh, you know, he has a letter to the famous... Jewish heretic Baruch Spinoza and this is what he writes this is in letter number 33 in Spinoza's letters all the world here is talking of a rumor of the return of the Israelites continues to their own country should the news be confirmed it may bring about a revolution in all things and he had Shabtai Tzvi some rabbinic followers he had Yitzhak Abohav the Francisca Moshe Rafael de Aguilar Moshe Galante, who was a big, big Jerusalem rabbi, at first believed in him as well, but then retracted. Moshe Zakato, Achaim Ben Benisti, who, when Shabtai returned to Israel, he took away the old traditional rabbi, put in Achaim Ben Benisti as well. He had Benyamin, or Dionysus Musafia, who was a very, very famous Dutch doctor and scholar. And there were delegations that went out from all places with parchments, you can look at parchments, ancient, um, go to Hamburg and other European and many Sephardic communities where it, where it was the most hit, of parchments declaring Shabtai Tzvi as, as, as Messiah. Now, notwithstanding all of the above, that despite the fact that Shabtai Tzvi in the Jewish world had more acceptance ever than, than Yashka had, than Jesus had, Okay, Jesus was rejected at birth <laughs> by the Jews. He had a few people. Shabtai Tzvi, you're talking about certain areas, a third of the population bought into him. Really high numbers. Certain Sephardic countries, it hit half of the population buying into him. Okay, um, the vast majority of rabbis either were skeptical or vociferously against. First and foremost, the Yaakov Sasportis of Amsterdam who railed against the Shabtai Tzvi. Uh, he actually got kicked out of Amsterdam because that was a Shabtai Tzvi stronghold at Amsterdam, the, Sfar- the Sephardic community of Amsterdam. And, because it was, was Muranos, you have to remember his conversos were the most affected. The Muranos were the most affected by Shabtai Tzvi. They were desperate for a Mashiach. And he got kicked out of Amsterdam and he continued his fight throughout um, Europe. And at this time, and with the consent of his adherents, Shabbat he started to say, well, we don't need to keep all Jewish laws, because in the Messianic era, it's actually a debate in the Talmud, and it's the minority opinion, 
You don't have to keep all laws. So he changed the letter in the tenth of Tavis in 1665 from a day of fasting to a day of rejoicing, a day of feast. It's no longer a fasting; it's a rejoicing. It's a messianic error. And he sent out his secretary with a directive. Look at source number two. The first begotten son of God, Shabtai Tzvi, Messiah and Redeemer of the people of Israel, to all the sons um, of Israel, peace. Since you have been deemed worthy to behold the great day and fulfillment of God's word by prophets, your lament and sorrow must be changed into joy. And you're fasting into merriment, for you shall weep no more. Rejoice with song and melody, and change that day formerly spent in sadness and sorrow to a day of jubilee, because I have appeared. No more fast day. Day of joy. Of course, he ended up getting into khair because of this by other rabbis. Rav Shlomo Agalzi, who was in the city when he said this, railed against them, and he got kicked out of Shmurna, because you see, but you see the greatness of these rabbis because they put their, literally their lives in danger to stand up to Shabbat because you had the masses wanting to believe in this guy and these people because of truth were willing to put their life into danger and what account happens next just gives a how desperate people are now there's a great book synagogue the Shul has it it's called The Memoirs of Glockel of Hamlin Glockel was a Jewish businesswoman who husband passed away and raised her eight children by herself. She lived from 1646, uh, where she was born in Hamburg, Hamburg, and passed away in 1724 in Metz. Her diary is a wonderful account of Judaism, of Jewish life in the 17th century. It's, it, I think Feldheim has a translation of the, the, the diary into English. Uh, she is an ancestor of Rav Hirsch, an ancestor of Heinrich Heine uh, and many others. Look at source number three. This is, this is her memoirs. About this time, she's living in the time. You, 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 she's, she's writing this in her diary. About this time, people began to talk of Shabtai Tzvi, but woe unto us that we have sinned and never lived to see what we heard and I believed. Throughout the world, servants and children rent themselves with repentance, prayer, and charity. For two, yeah, for th- three years, my beloved people Israel sat in labor, but there came forth naught but wind. It was a miscarriage, right? Our joy, when the letters arrived from Smyrna, is not to be told. Most of them were addressed to the Sephardim, because the Sephardic community sending it out. As fast as they came, they took the letters to the synagogue, read them aloud. Young and old Germans, too, were hastened to the Sephardic synagogues. Many sold their houses and lands, and all of their possessions for the day they hoped to be redeemed. My good father-in-law left his home in Hamelin, abandoned his house and his lands and all of his goodly furniture. Full well we know the Most High has given us word, and we're not so wicked, but truly pious in the bottom of our hearts. I'm certain God would have mercy on us. If we only kept the commandment, thou shalt love thy neighbor itself, but God forgive us the way we kept it, no good came from the jealousy and the fellows hate the rules of our lives. She then decides why the shift didn't come. But you can see how people were selling their houses. They're getting letters from Shmurna. They don't know what's going on. And they're selling their houses. There's an excitement. They're running to the synagogues. And Shabtai is going around saying, he's, he, the, 60, the year 1665, 
people are selling their house, and all of a sudden there's now songs going out in the name of Shab Tzvi. Right? This is the sorry. Bless our Lord. It's called the Amir. Bless our Lord, our King, the Holy and Righteous Shab Tzvi, the Messiah of God of Jacob. Okay. Um, in Hamburg, they used to say this Shabbos, Monday and Thursday. And if you didn't believe in Shabbat Tzvi, they made you sit in synagogue and say, Amen. Right? You know, blessed is Shabbat Tzvi. You don't believe in it, you sit in Shul and you say, um, Amen. I, you know, I don't want to compare it, it's not fair, but when you talk about more contemporary day, you know, Mashiach's movements, you have a similar dynamic amongst people who believe, trying to push people who don't necessarily believe in uh, in it. Uh, it's an election in its own right, but you can see how when you believe something, you don't want everyone else to believe it as well in a messianic uh, fervor. These and similar innovations obviously start to get, you know anger more and more of the you know the from communities. Then Shavasa Batamas and ninth of Av, which he claims his birthday, he turned into feast days. And Yom Kippur, annulled. You know, have a Yom Kippur party. Finally, in the, in the year 1666, on September 15th, and he's going, Shabtai Tzvi said he's going to tell the Sultan he wants control of Israel. He made this announcement, and the Sultan called him in. He called his bluff. And he brings Shabtai Tzvi into him. September 15th, 16. 66. And he said to Shabtai Tzvi, you have two choices. You convert to Islam or you die. <laughs> Messiah or night. Shabtai Tzvi smiled, thought about it. I'll convert. Shabtai Tzvi no longer became Shabtai Tzvi. He was given a royal t- title, Aziz Mahmad Effendi. He was ca- ca- given a position of keepers of the Sultan's Gate and a pension of 150 piastres, the Turkish Ottoman Turk money a day. To say the least, when Shabtai Tzvi converted, the, world, the Jewish world was shocked. Okay? The Jewish world, you know, just on a small example, you know, imagine Lubavitch, if Lubavitch Rebbe became Muslim. Imagine uh, Bells, if, you know, if this, uh, imagine Chafetz Chaim became, God forbid, a Catholic. I mean, you these are, you know, could you imagine what that does to people? Now, in this case, he was anyways controversial because he had enthusiastic believers and he had people who despised him from the beginning. People who thought he was a charlatan. But it shocked beyond belief the Jewish world. And immediately it was denounced. Now, if you look at the ancient charters in many cities like Amsterdam, they actually crossed out and ripped out pages. They were so embarrassed that leaders had signed on and he was the leaders. Other places crossed things out um, and it became um, you know, a reckoning, which we'll discuss in a minute. Not everyone changed their mind. And in fact, 300 families joined Shabtai Tzvi into Islam. They became something called Donma, which is Islamic converts. Okay, which we'll discuss in a minute. Nathan of Gaza advised people not to convert into Islam, but he started saying he's still going to be Messiah. It's all part of getting the Klippus. He had to go into Islam to redeem the Klippus. 
And once he redeems the Kalibas, he'll end up being Messiah. It's part of going to the depth of Tumah to pull it out. Shabbat Tzvi himself started saying he's Messiah again. He, at one point, he went to a Jewish synagogue and the Sultan took away his pension and exiled him where he died in 1676. The Dharma, though, these Islamic converts lived beyond him. Now, the Dharma, the, the despite the conversion to Islam, were much more close to Judaism. Um, then, and they, uh, they, um, practiced in secret their customs. Um, they were kind of like early Christians. They had a very heavy Jewish bent. And they believed in Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah. And that he had left the practical, uh, commandments. And he was still gonna come back. And they had something called Tlas Kishre Demun, also. The three bonds of, of faith. And, uh, which, which was almost like a Trinitarian belief. They also, like Shabtai Tzvi, they believed that a lot of the commandments were abrogated because we're in a Messianic period. And they were known for very lewd holidays. Very lewd holidays. Wife swapping and other things of the sort. They celebrated Shabtai Tzvi's birth. They're a forerunner to the Frankists. Well, one second, I'll get to it. So, they, 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 they all Shabtai Tzvi's birthday. There were several branches. The third branch was led by, um, and all the, the branches had bizarre beliefs. The third branch of this Islamic sect, Dharma, who were all Jews, because they had a rule no intermarry Muslims. So the, the lineage was Jewish. They didn't marry out. They only married each other. All these families are intermarrying one to another. So they would remain Jewish for generations. The third branch was led by the Rakhia Russo, uh, and they were known as the Karkashi. One of these Karkashi sent a missionary into Poland, and they taught something called Jacob Frank, who in 1726-1791 took this Sabbatine thought process, and also discussed how to, to take out the evil from the world, the Messiah would come, and apply it to Catholicism. And he had, first of all, wildly lewd parties himself, that's what you were mentioning, and all kinds of wife swapping. I mean, really. And what happened is, is, in his theology, everything became, in the name of Kabbalah, taking out, by doing it in the name of God, going to the murky waters of Tamah, of impure, of profane, the exact opposite of Judaism, but to take out, to do, to, to, to sanctify it. And we'll go there, and we'll sanctify it. So Frank himself ultimately converts to Christianity. And he tells his followers, we're going to bring out Messiah out of Catholicism. Um, and he dies in 1791. Sorry, but, okay. um, but, this, but, and his daughter Eve actually uh, uh, continues it. Okay? This dharma stuck around by, at one point they had 10,000 to 15,000 uh, followers. Believe it or not, the dharma, who ultimately assimilate in the 20th century, and are gone. But they were very, very active in the Young Turk movement. They were, of the Young Turks, the people responsible for bringing down the Ottoman Empire with Kemal Ataturk, they, a lot of the leaders were these dharma. One of them, who ended up being the Minister of Finance, was Javed Bey. And many people contend that Kemal Ataturk himself came from Dunma lineage. Um, the, the, the Turks banned that kind of thought. They completely deny it, but especially amongst the religious Turks who didn't like the modernization of Turkey, they also claim that Kemal Ataturk may have or did come from Dunma blood. This Kabbalistic 
events of Shabtai Tzvi, Jacob Frank, the Dunmar, people believing Kabbalah, had a backlash beyond belief. Because the people who didn't listen to the rabbis then, they were all listening now to the dangers of Kabbalah gone wild. And basically what then happened was, not only were the Shabbatians attacked, but even some innocent Kabbalists came under it. Because many of the leaders blamed Kabbalah, and rightly so, unbridled Kabbalah on what happened. The most important of them was Chacham Tzvi, who really went after the Sabbateans. Chacham Tzvi was with Tzvi Ashkenazi of Amsterdam, which were the Sabbateans who had been based, a large community. He went out, but his son, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, took it to the next level. In Rabbi Yaakov Emden, whose last name was Ashkenazi, but took the name Emden from the, the, the rabbi, he was a rabbi in Emden, and later in, Am, in Altona, he, in 17 mid-18th centuries, accused one of the greatest sages of the generation, Rabbi Yoinus and Ibishitz, of being a Sabbatean. Okay, I see the time, I don't have time to go into all the details. Suffice it to say, that it became a, 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 a war where they got each other excommunicated, the Danish princes had to get involved. Rabbi Yoinus and Ibishitz um, was vilified, Rabbi Yaakov Emden uh, was vilified. And these were two of the greatest leaders of the generation. I mean, the Vilma Goyen got involved, and the Yudu got involved, and many others who backed Rabbi Yudu and Ibshitz. Um, ultimately, Rabbi Yaakov Emden um, stopped the vilification, although to the end of his life he believed that Rabbi Yudu and Ibshitz was Sabbatean. The reason he believed that Rabbi Yudu and Ibshitz was Sabbatean was because he used to make kamiyas, amulets. Amulets with, with, with divine names. And he used to pass it out. He felt some of these amulets had Sabbatean influences on it. And he went after him for this reason. Just to cut a short, a long story story, after this, literally you'd have to imagine there were fights on the streets. You know, we think, you have to imagine if you'd be in the, Amster, if in the, the European news, you would have seen like these two sects constantly fighting Jewish, the two of the greatest leaders, it was a big Chil Hashem. Caused a lot of tension, a lot of turmoil. The Yonis and Ibshitz passed away in 1764, and Rabbi Yaakov Emden passed away Erev Shabbos, 1776, and it was right before Shabbos. And in Europe, they used to bury that that day. And in the hurry, they buried Rabbi Yonis and uh, Rabbi Yaakov Emden in the first open grave they found, which is two or three graves away from Rabbi Yonis and Ibshitz. Is you know, I just as far as the Musser, there are a lot of people who got caught in the fight. I don't have time to go through all the details which I had written down to say, but the Chassam Soifer's reports have once been giving shear, and he said that he looked up in Shemayim, and he saw Rabbi Yonis and Ibshitz and Rabbi Yaakov Emden learning Bechavrusa, because really they were part of the tragedy of the generation because they both meant well. It was all in the backlash that this happened. But Sam Sofer said he, he started to cry because he looked down. He said, what did you see when you looked down? I saw all the students burning in Gehenna. Because all these students got involved in this whole fight and they, ne- they, 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 they never recovered from it. There was one other sage who bore the brunt of this backlash. His name was Moshe Chaim Lutzato, the Ramchal. He was a boy wonder, a genius of geniuses. 
Okay, he came from a very distinguished family. He was a nonconformist. He himself was not only a Bucky in Talmud, he was thorough in Talmud as a young man. He also wrote three plays. <laughs> he knew science very well, literature. He was clean shaven, and at the same time, he was clear- claiming to hear heavenly voices. A Magid would speak to him. And he was teaching this to medical students in Italy. Look at source number four. Okay. This is Rabbi Yakusul Gordon, who really got the Ramchal in trouble. He says, There is a holy man, my master and teacher, the holy lamp, the lamp of God, his honor, Moshe Chaim Lutzatu. For the past two and a half years, a Magid has been revealed to him, a holy and tremendous angel who reveals wondrous mysteries to the him. The angel speaks out of his mouth, but we, his disciples, hear nothing. The angel re- begins to reveal to him great mysteries. Then my master orders Eliyahu to come to him, and he comes to impart mysteries of his own. Sometimes, Metatron, which is one of the angels, the great prince, also comes to him, as well as the faithful shepherd, Moshe. I meant that's supposed to be Moshe. The patriarch, Avram, Rabbi Hamluna, the elder, and that old man, and sometimes King Messiah, and Adam. To sum up, nothing is hidden from him. At first, permission was only granted to reveal to him the mysteries of the Torah, but now all things are revealed to him. Now, post-Shabtai Tzvei, when people hear things like this, even before Shabtai Tzvei, when people hear things like this, they think, who is this? He was 20 years old. When they're saying this about the Ramchal. He was 20 years old. People got very Is this going to turn off? At 1.30? Okay. People got very nervous. And not only that, the Ramchal had set up a bunch of people to bring the Messiah. Now, how are they going to bring the Messiah? They're going to be just, they believe by Torah, by mitzvahs. He never ever had messianic aspirations, but he felt that if we would daven, and we would do Torah, we do mitzvahs, we can bring the Messiah. And when word got out, the Ramchal doing these things, and he's teaching heavy Kabbalistic things, speaking to a, a, a heavenly voice, the, the rabbis of Venice, he was living in Padua, put him into Cherem, and warned him, not, the Cherem was actually not on him as an individual, because he did nothing wrong himself. He took no messianic, or he was known as a genius, he was a boy wonder, people knew that, but they banned him from studying or teaching Kabbalah. And he had protectors in his own city, and he had great rabbis who he had learned by, and they all knew he was a very wise person, but this kind of, look at source number four, this is not unacceptable. And having Messianic get-togethers to bring Messiah through prayer and Torah study was together. And it created a very bitter controversy on the variety of his. Was he a secret Sabbatean, perhaps? Was he not a secret Sabbatean? And remember, the Sabbateans were still all around Europe at that time. Um, you know, is he speaking to Amag or not? And they put, they made his life miserable. Actually, 60 years ago, they found his letters where he discusses the persecution that they put him under. Um, they really made his life miserable. He moved to Amsterdam. Um, and at the age of 33 years old, he published a work called The Sos Hashem, The Path of the Just. The Way of God, Das Tfunas, The Knowing Heart, and Klach Peskei Chachma, 138 Ways of Chachma, and many other Kabbalistic works beyond that. Um, he, in 1743, he moved to Israel. Uh, he d- came to Israel the same day as the Orachim, where the great Kabbalists passed away. Um, 
Little is known of his life, that, but that he died in a, pl- uh, uh, died in a plague um, a few years later, and he's buried right next to Rabbi Akiva in Tiberias. Okay. Uh, one of the great Hasidic rabbis said that the Ramchal was just not, wor- his generation is not worthy of him. Okay. Rabbi Yaakov Emden, who was actually, who had fought against the Shabbat, he had fought against the Ramchal also. He himself re- expressed regret afterwards that he came against Ramchal. He said he did nothing wrong, but that he was, you know, and he was clearly a holy guy. Clearly a holy, a holy man. And even the Muslim movement revitalized him to an extent. Rabbi Chaim Freelander publishes works. Many actually attribute Ramachal, because if you ever read Mitzvah Sharam or Derech Hashem, the clarity of the Hebrew as the father of modern Hebrew. But it was one individual who more than everyone else rehabilitated the Ramachal. Because when the Ramachal passed away, he was relatively unknown. He was a boy wonder who got crushed at a very young age. Mitzvah Sharam was not part of the mainstream liter- uh, works that were studied in Europe. His Derek Hashem probably never been known. There was one individual who was the greatest scholar of his generation who rehabilitated the Ramchal and his name was the Vilna Goyim. The Rebbe Eliyahu ben Shlomo Zalman, the Vilna Goyim, said about the Ramchal that he had not one extra word in his works that all of his works are based on Chazal, on the words of our sages, and the Vilna Goyim, who knew Kol Kula, who knew all of the literature of Torah, said himself, which just shows his love of Torah, that he would go to the feet of the Ramachal if he could, and study Torah by him. This Vilna Goyim, now then the Ramachal of course became popularized, and the Shalom is the classic Muslim Sefer of the past 250 years, since the time of the Vilna Goyim, the Ramachal's works are mainstay and Ramchal is viewed as one of the great Kabbalists and one of the tragic stories. The Vilna Goyen was the one who rehabilitated Ramosha Chaim Lutzato and made him part of the mainstream of Judaism and one of the most exalted figures of the past few hundred years would come against another great Kabbalist. The Vilna Goyen would be the main adversary of another great Kabbalist. That will be the theme of next week's lecture. That Kabbalist's name was the Baal Shem Tov and his followers, the Hasidic movement. The next lecture will be about the Hasidic moment, movement and its opponents. That will be June 21st, a Tuesday night, three weeks from now at 8 p.m. Thank you.